0: Well, greetings to you at Grace Point Church, uh, and thank you to Pastor Gary and the elders for allowing me to participate in this, uh, these uh, Sunday mornings that you have. Well, we have strong memories of uh, Ephraga First Baptist Church, now Grace Point, as I grew up there. I think I was born virtually in the basement as the church was constructed uh, around that basement and then was added on to time after time. By the grace of God, good growth. And so I, I'm i delighted to be with you this morning. Ruthie sends her greetings as well as my daughters, Rachel and Crystal. And uh, even some of our grandkids were there and afraid of very, just for a few hours this last spring. Well, thank you, because it was there that I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Uh, Dr. William Wright was the pastor then, and I had the privilege of being baptized by him as some of you, at least you came to faith under him, my brother Don, I think Bill Correll, and others. Junior high and high school were wonderful, formative times in my life and uh, and I think in many others as well. And uh, I went off to Seattle Pacific University, coming back quite often, and you were supportive as we began to look at missions. I began to look at missions and did did go out uh, a number of times and began uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, halfway through that, uh, we came back to Efrida, and Ruthie and I were married there, in the sanctuary at Grace Point, and and became I became assistant pastor to Don Stoops at that point. Several years later, we came back again, and I had the privilege between Bernard Travail and John Holkey of being the interim pastor for six or seven months, as you both ordained uh, me to ministry and then sent. Ruthie and I out as your missionaries. Rachel and Crystal were born. Crystal was born in the hospital there in, in Ephrata Hospital. It's only a senior citizen center now. But you stood with us and prayed with us, and uh, we rejoice. And a number of times we cycled back in Ephrata and lived in different houses. For one year, our first year, we lived in the little house right beside the sanctuary, or the church today, that little beige cracker box on, on, the, uh, on the corner. And that met our needs, and we we thank you again and again. For the last 23 years, uh, I've served in theological studies or systematic theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. And that, too, has been a great joy and allowed to minister in different parts of the world. Well, it is said that our bodies completely change. Every cell in our body is not what it was 10 years ago. So your body is entirely different in a cellular sense, except for just a very few in the brain. And uh, on occasion, I wonder if those are still with me. But we've completely changed, and yet the soul, the spirit lives on in that body. And so it is with the local church, too. Things change, people change, buildings change, structures change. But the soul of those who love the Lord, uh, the the collective uh, local body of Christ, lives on. And so I, I'm, I'm privileged to be with you uh, this morning. May, may God bless this on God, our Father, that unites us all. So thank you.
1: Take care. And uh, coming to lead us um, in our group time together as we begin to work together on these projects is Dr. Scott Harrell. Uh, Dr. Harrell is a professor at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, our partner in Passion Global Institute. Uh, Dr. Harrell is the uh, professor uh, for the Trinitarianism class that's going on right now, the master's level class. Uh, but more than all of that, I'd like to say is Dr. Harrell has spent his life um, as a missionary and as a pastor, leading people. Uh, he's fluent in Portuguese and spent many years um, in Brazil uh, leading the seminary there and teaching and training people, has written books in Portuguese. And so the bottom line is Dr. Rell understands how to lead People And I've enjoyed my time uh, getting to know him briefly just over these last couple of days. And I know you're going to enjoy uh, your time with him as he leads us through these uh, practical sessions on how we can apply the Trinity to our daily lives. So let's welcome uh, Dr. Scott Harrell to lead us. Thank you, Aaron. If we may
0: step into God the Father, who really today can be called the forgotten member of the Trinity. I mean, Pentecostals and Charismatics, and many of us focus a lot on the Holy Spirit. Evangelicals are particularly known for focusing on Jesus, the Son. In the 19th century, God the Father was kind of the thing. He was the father of everybody. The whole gospel, in Adolf von Harnack's terms, is the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Everybody is under the great love of God. But as evangelicals and others have reacted against that old liberalism, there's very little written on the Father today. I have, you know, seminary libraries in my own library. I have hundreds of books on the Trinity, hundreds on Jesus Christ, maybe a hundred on the Holy Spirit, and about five on God the Father. And sometimes even a book on God the Father has that title, but really is discussing the attributes of God rather than the Father himself that we heard about just a, few minutes, just a few minutes ago. So it is appropriate to speak of God, as, God the Father as the forgotten member of the Trinity. We might ask, how does our experience of a father in this life influence our understanding of God the Father? Perhaps you know some who just can't even pray with the language of father because they have been abused or they have these wretched memories of the one that brought them into the world somehow, or maybe it was even a foster father, one thing or another. On the other hand, step back and think a little bit about Christian faith and what we say the family ought to be and what a family ought to be. I don't want to be pejorative here, but think of other traditional cultures around the world. I'm in and out of Africa quite a lot, and it's not uncommon, as was in the news a couple of weeks ago, for someone to brag that I have over 100 children. Well, in the traditional African culture, Swaziland has four wives right now, a wealthy chieftain or other person would would accumulate wives and then have dozens and dozens of children. What was it like to be a child of a father in that kind of a context? As a young girl, well, you're good for a a handsome dowry, perhaps, or maybe a treatise with uh, another tribe or some kind of liaison with another family, but... What is your relationship with your father when he just barely knows your name? In the Muslim world, of course, men are allowed to marry four women. That doesn't happen too often. Place like Jordan, there's more often divorce and the father marries a younger model. And so what do you do when you're the child of a divorced mother or a second wife, third, in terms of the preference now, now of the husband? How do you feel? It's the son's vie for inheritance and The daughters don't quite know where they fit. What about in East Asia, Southeast Asia, as well as all of Eastern Asia? Thanks to Confucius, the man has that superior role. And so sons, but especially wives and daughters, traditionally are to serve their father. There's very little affection shown between father and children. In Latin America, and I was there for 18 years, uh, my language school teachers would tell us most of the men here have a a lover on the side. I'm not sure that's always true. I hope it isn't. But but traditionally, the the father of of the family would guard very carefully his daughter's virginity, but at the same time, he might take his son out and break him in with a prostitute. That was fairly common in a place like Sao Paulo, where I lived. So when we think of the Christian family over against other traditions, whether it's Hollywood housewives or whether it's the LBGT community today trying to reconstruct uh, what a family and what a father might be, it is, uh, it is telling, isn't it? We look at the Bible and say, wow, that works so well. Consider also those like some of us, we have alcoholic fathers, so we can remember some of some of the violence and, and the way perhaps a mother was treated or, or the child. abusive father relationships in other areas, these broken families. I suspect if I had you raise your hands, how many are from broken families? Uh, a good number of you would raise your hands. And so talking about fathers is supremely important. And of course, how is a father portrayed in television? I think Father Knows Best that as mentioned, it's probably the last program that actually, or maybe Little House on the Prairie, something like that. But almost no programs today give particular dignity to the father. Uh, In fact, quite the contrary. He's usually the idiot in the advertisements and everything else, isn't he? And so when we look at fathers, even in the media, uh, they're seen as selfish, uninvolved, unfaithful overwhelmed, irrelevant. Not all the time, but much of the time, aren't they? And yet sociologists, and a lot is coming out in this area in our day, they concur. Fathers are important for the self-image of a child, for the moral and emotional needs. They desire a dad they can trust. But of course, the modern perspective on fatherhood makes it difficult for many to trust than a heavenly father. So how might knowing a heavenly father contribute to our understanding earthly fathers, what we ought to be, and perhaps what we didn't have with now a new father, our heavenly father? Let's go there. God is father, reconceiving fatherhood by understanding the God of the Bible. Let me give you a little background here. The Bible presupposes and reiterates that the word God in the Old Testament and most of the time in the New Testament reflects the Father. That's primarily the Father, not all the time. We'll see Jesus is called God and so forth. The term God in the New Testament is used, there you have it behind me, 1,350 times or thereabouts, and usually again designates the Father. The term father we find in the New Testament about 250 times. And many of the phrases in the New Testament refer to him. So here are a number that I can throw out. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And we can go on from there. Father in the Old Testament is a rare term in terms of God being a father. We find it applied to God the Father only about... 15 times max, because the Old Testament was guarding against the idea endemic in all the other cultures around them that God, Father, has a wife and they have offspring, and so the polytheism that surrounded Israel was leaned against. So we don't see Father often. We do sometimes. God is a Father to Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. God is a Father to this one special son of David will be called a son of God, today have I begotten you. He's a father to the widow and the fatherless, we're told. But it's not a common term. In the New Testament, we have these terms, patros and pater, meaning father. So we have patrology, we have uh, you know, many terms that relate to that. It is Jesus that introduces this word father as normative to us as believers. And yet, as Jesus introduces this term, he also makes it clear. Now, he'll teach us to pray to our Father, who art in heaven, but he also distinguishes when he's talking like with Mary, in, Mary Magdalene in the garden, he distinguishes between my Father and his own relationship with the Father and your Father. We see that repeatedly. It's really John's gospel out of all the rest of the New Testament that uniquely uses Father for God, 122 times, far more than just Theos, God that the other other Gospels use and most of the rest of the Bible uses. Half the times times then that we see the word Father in the New Testament, it is in the Gospel of John as related to God. That's significant. There is another term as well, and that is Abba, the Aramaic, Aramaic term, which we don't see in the Old Testament, interestingly, but, but it translates as father or dad. It's only used three times in the New Testament. The Spirit cries out within us that Abba, Father, that we are truly the children of God. But Abba, how many of you have ever heard that Abba really means daddy? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty common word out there. And maybe it does in one sense. But I'll tell you, I was sitting in a, an executive meeting, and I, I happened to be by a, a very high-priced financial consultant coming in from Toronto. And he was asked to lead in prayer, and he kept saying, my daddy, my daddy, my daddy. Here he is in a suit and all the rest. And I was like, no, you've got it wrong. When my daughters call me daddy, which isn't too often, but they're saying it respectfully, Usually, and and yet endearingly, and so Abba is that same idea of of an endearing term, uh, given by an adult child, a way he might, adult, adult son or daughter, speaking to their their father. So it reflects reverent intimacy, loving respect, not a childish, my daddy, my daddy. Well, let's talk about the father's character and his roles for a few minutes. There's a lot more that can be said, of course, but this is kind of the the, the view from from the airplane above us. First of all, in terms of what does the Father do in a particular way? He is the creator, as we heard from Afshin a little bit earlier. Uh, You you can't listen to a theologian and not get a little uh, Latin, so here we go. The Father is the Fons Divinitatis. That means he is the source or fount of everything of all existence. He is the originator of everything, including human life. He has life in himself, and he gives life to all else through the Son and the Spirit. I think as Afshin was speaking and and used uh, Acts 2 as one of the texts, and of course Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, meaning Yahweh, although it's Elohim there, uh, created the heaven and the earth, and the Spirit was was hovering above the deep, the lifeless deep, and then God spoke, out from him came the word, and there was creation. Now, that's not to say the author of Genesis understood a trinity. We'd never say that. But it does mean that when we look canonically, when we look back from the full revelation of the rest of the Bible, we see a lot of trinity, even in the Old Testament. I like to say it's the bedrock underneath a lot of other things and shrubbery and all the rest. But if God is truly triune, then he makes that known on many levels, doesn't he? Tomorrow we'll look a little bit more at this term as well because many in Christian history have seen the Father as the eternal origin of the Son and the Spirit. And so we talk about eternal generation and eternal procession, the Son ever coming forth, but never a time when he was not. And the same with the Spirit. That takes you beyond where most of you have been. But we'll come back to that. Creator. God does that. Remember in in the book, let me go back to that for just a minute, the book of Revelation and the song around the throne. In Revelation 4, clearly the Father on the throne. And they cry out, the 24 elders, You are worthy, our Lord and God, "...to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will they were created and have their being." But of course, he's creating with the Son and with the Spirit. Creator. Secondly, sovereign ruler. A lot of passages come in here, of course, but God the Father is revealed as the transcendent ruler of all existence. There's nothing above him, nothing behind him. All things come forth from him, together with the Son and the Spirit. But there is an order there, it would seem. The plan of all time, of all space, is his. The purpose and ends of creation, the decree regarding the elect, the sovereign in all of this, it comes forth from God. The sovereign God does not need us or anything in creation. And yet, here's the beauty, as we were hearing in the last hour. He chooses to relate to creation and to us in an exceedingly personal way. He is the sovereign ruler, creator, sovereign ruler, holy judge. Some have called him the Lord Chief Justice of all the universe. In a way, he's seen as the supremely just judge who exists in unapproachable light, this father who is the moral absolute Of all existence, not apart from the Son and the Spirit, but in a central kind of way. All that is contrary to the divine nature, then, must be brought to justice in an ethical universe. Moral justice and judgment, of course, is shared with the Son and the Spirit, but there is that Father, Judge, Lord, Chief Justice of the universe. We'll talk more about that tomorrow as well. But we often think of the Father as judge, don't we? We forget sometimes, as though Afshin laid this out very nicely, it is the Father who is that supreme one, but who also invites us. And so the Father, 2 Corinthians 5.18, All this is from God, but listen, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us a ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Wow. Another text, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There is a sense in which God hates the world. His back is turned to the world, and yet in his compassion made made visible and possible through Christ, he can now offer his grace to all who believe. The compassionate reconciler. So while it's Christ who is our substitute, the Spirit applies Christ's work in our lives, yet it is especially by the Spirit that we are called to, excuse me, by the Father, that we are called to salvation We are forgiven in a particular way by the Father. We are justified, treated as though we are now righteous because of Christ's work, but it is before the Father we are justified. We are made sons and daughters of the living God. We're not sons and daughters of Jesus or of the Holy Spirit. We are particularly sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ before the Father. And so we are adopted. He is legitimate as heirs, and it is through... It is to whom, to the Father, that we are brought into fellowship and service in a particular way. And so rarely today we actually hear messages on the Father. And so uh, to look at all of this reminds us that God, the Father, reflects profound benevolence toward all of us. So he's a creator, compassionate, excuse me, sovereign ruler, uh, the Lord Chief Justice, the compassionate reconciler. One other that I want to look at rather quickly here is this. He is the one to whom all things return. Now, this is a difficult passage for everyone, but look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, meaning Christ, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, God the Father, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. There is a sense that as the Father is the one who initiates creation, in a sense, then everything comes back to the Father. Yet God the Father's glory is a shared glory. So he shares that glory with the Son and the Spirit as well, one of the beauties we will return to. So there's many things that can be said about the Father. Again, creator, sovereign ruler, holy judge, compassionate reconciler, him to whom all things return. And there are a lot of other metaphors. He's the potter, we are the clay. He's the husband of Israel. He is the king of a kingdom and so forth. But the father, his roles are helpful to us. So again, how might knowing our heavenly father contribute to understanding our earthly fathers? There's so much here i just love to camp on. In one sense, Jesus and the Father, as we look at the Son and the Father, this this language that takes us all the way into the very heart of who God is beyond all creation, time, and space. Son, Father. It's what the early church understood. These terms are central to everything else. Those terms lead us directly to the doctrine of the Trinity. But Jesus and the Father in their ideal son-father relationship in this world, as the son followed the father as good sons did and do in our world today. Afshin mentioned that sometimes God the Father is used as a model for our earthly fathers. Many feminists today say, hey, there's no connection, you know, God's trans- he's beyond all gender. He created, you know, male and female. He's beyond all of that, and surely they're right. The early church understood that as well. But there are times when God as our Father, as in Hebrews 12, is directly applied also to how we should be His fathers. Fathers should discipline their children. Uh, the perfect Father disciplines those He loves. We see in 1 Corinthians eleven three a very debated text today by many, but but language that at least speaks of the way God works into our creation. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What we call the economic trinity, that is the way God has spent himself, to use it in a popular way, the way God has revealed himself in creation uh, is that. We also speak of God as an ontological or eternal or proper word is eminent trinity beyond all creation, before creation, God in himself. Obviously, when Christ humbled himself and took the form of a servant and went to the cross and prayed to the Father, that's not identical to what God is in his transcendence as the trinity. So there are things we will unpack a little bit more as we continue on. But there are some lessons even here for all of us. To fallen humanity, submission equals inferiority, doesn't it? Not true in the triune God. Equally God in nature, the Son and the Spirit reveal themselves as they truly are. They all are God. They all have authority. But they exercise that authority in different ways relating one to the other. In the Trinity, each is free and fully themselves. There is mutuality and order, both the directive and the response. And so in our lives, every one of us has those to whom we are responsible and those who are under us in some way, whether children in a nursery, whatever it might be, on many levels, in families, in churches. These levels should reflect for the believer a Trinitarian equality and order as we work through them. There's a lot to learn from God as our Father. There's something else. Do you remember when when Jesus, the only pericope, the only uh, uh, incident we have of the boy Jesus, we know almost nothing from his birth and then fleeing to Egypt, going back to Nazareth, but then, then, of course, he begins his ministry at perhaps 33 years of age. But we have the 12-year-old boy in the temple. We're told that it was the custom of the family to go to the Passover, which happens to be, you know, Good Friday, rather appropriately, each year. And there is Jesus who stays behind, but the family's moving on. They've gone down to Jericho. That's a long walk, by the way. They're a day away. It is an easy walk down, but a hard walk back. Mary, his mother, was a little disgusted when they'd been looking, what, for three days and found, finally, Jesus in the temple. Son, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Uh... She was a little angry, I suspect. And what does Jesus say? Why were you looking for me? Do you not know I must be in my father's house? Now, almost certainly, Joseph was with Mary. Joseph's Jesus' father in a social sense. I wonder how Joseph felt when he heard those words. And in fact, we really don't learn anything more about Joseph other than that he was the father of Jesus later on, uh, he sort of disappears from the scriptures. But many in Roman Catholicism and elsewhere rightly use Joseph as a good example of what a father should be. He did it right. Remember, only Gabriel came to Mary. She had that one angelic vision, appearance. Angels came to Joseph at least three times, probably four, as they fled to well, even to Mary, Mary to begin with, and so forth. But hearing Jesus say that, I must be in my father's house, I wonder if it really hurt Joseph. Yet Joseph did precisely what fathers are called to do, to pass their fatherhood to God as the true father. The big point of my having children or grandchildren is not me and they're all liking me and all the rest. It is really to lead them on to the true father, who is God the Father, and we know him through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So I ask you tonight, how is God a father to you? How does he work in your life as a father? A lot of things to reflect on this evening, aren't there? I'd like us all to stand and to recite together the good King James Version of the Lord's Prayer. A few these and thous that some of you aren't used to. But let's read it together. And right after this, we'll silently watch as the Apostles' Creed uh, comes on behind us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
1: I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived
0: by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the
1: right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church